Welcome to Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. We're so glad that you are listening with us today, and we hope that this message is a blessing. Well, in 2012, um, there was a, I would say probably one of the most influential or top influential Christian authors, speakers of, of my generation um, there was suspicion that maybe he was kind of veering off course theologically. And then in 2012, he wrote a book where he reshaped the traditional historical view of hell. And, and so when this book came out, for some people, they, they took a stance of, I knew this guy was a heretic. Um, and they, they wrote him off and said, we knew this all along. He kind of solidified it. For other people, there was, man, this just feels more compelling. This feels, this feels like what my heart longs for. What I, this helps me to make sense of some things that I've wrestled with. And then of all, a lot of other people just kind of felt stuck with tension in between of, okay, is, is he right? Was my upbringing wrong? Like, what if he's wrong? I, I just don't know what to do with it. And, but really, it got to the heart of what's probably one of the, one of the top questions or objections that people have to Christianity, and that has to do with, with hell. I mean, is, how can we look at God and say that he's good when he creates billions of people and, and only some go to heaven? Like, how could a good God create people knowing that there was a chance of them going to hell? And why would he even create hell in the first place? And so this is a question that, that people wrestle with. And so as we're doing this series called Quietly Questioning, maybe that's something that you have, maybe it's something a friend has, uh, um, maybe something your kids have. I don't, I don't know where you are. It might be something you're verbally processing, but there's a chance that you're just quietly sitting on this question with something that doesn't sit well with you. And so today what I wanna do is let's come to God's word. Last week, Bill unpacked for us how God's word is true and trustworthy and reliable and how we center our lives on it because it's about Jesus. And so if we believe God's word, um, let's look at what God's word has to say about this topic. So let's, let's jump in. Luke chapter 16, and we're gonna pick up in verse 19. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking um, about a, a rich man and Lazarus. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So in verses 19 through 21, this is talking about a situation before death occurs. And it's contrasting two different guys. There's a, a guy that is super rich. We do not know his name. And then in contrast, there's a guy who is super poor and we do have his name, which is unique. When Jesus tells parables, he normally doesn't give names. So maybe this is a real story, maybe not, we're not sure. But he gives the name. Lazarus is this poor guy, completely opposite of the rich man. Verse 23, it says, and in, um, or verse 22, it says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so now we have the situation in the afterlife. So what happens is these two guys die. Um, the poor man finds himself at Abraham's side, which is symbolic for being in a, a place of divine blessing, uh, a place of receiving blessing, divine favor. And then the rich man finds himself in Hades, which in this chapter, this, this word Hades is referencing a place of punishment for the wicked. And so he is being punished for wickedness. 
All right? And so what this is going to do for us is it's going to reveal eventually this guy's heart. So look at verse 24. Why did this guy find himself in Hades and not by Abraham's side? Verse 24, it says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Just take note of that word mercy. We're going to come back to this. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. And so what we see here is the rich man knows Lazarus's name in the afterlife because he knew Lazarus's name in life which means that he was fully aware of Lazarus's financial condition or situation. He knew all of the basic needs that Lazarus had, which weren't being met. And, and, and he always saw Lazarus as being below him, which that attitude has carried over even into the afterlife, where at this point, he's like, I need this guy to come serve me. He's beneath me, so send him to come and help me out. And what verse 24 reveals is that this man's heart is hardened towards God. And so when you think about it, like, like how do we find eternal life? It's, it's through belief in Christ, repent and believe. But what's, what we see gets us to hell. If you're like, what, what sends us to hell? It's not an unbelief in Jesus that sends you to hell. It's a hardness of heart or a rejection of God. Right? And so while we believe in Jesus to get to heaven, not believing in Jesus isn't what sends us to hell. What sends us to hell is our hardness of heart, our rejection of God. And so what we see here is this man has rejected God. His heart is hardened towards him. All right, verse 25 says, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so we see in verse 26 that there are, that in verse 25, death is the great equalizer. So death is the great equalizer. Here this man had his status. He had his possessions on earth, but he can't bring them with him to the afterlife. And so now he's lost his identity, which is why he doesn't have a name in the afterlife. But now in contrast to that, the rich man is receiving or the poor man is receiving comfort. So death is the equalizer. Look at verse 26. And he says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so verse 26 shows us that eternity is fixed. And I don't, I don't believe this is a, a fear tactic. Like you, you only get one chance, but I do believe what he's saying is don't miss the opportunities that God has laid before you. So as we live on earth, God is giving us opportunities to see his grace, to know his heart, to choose Jesus. But there will be a day when we cross over into the afterlife. And at that point, there's not a second chance. There's not a, quote, door that's locked from the inside, or there's not a gate that is open that we then see Jesus like, okay, now I get it. And I'm going to choose Jesus in the afterlife. It's like, no, no, we have our opportunities now in the afterlife your eternity is fixed. There are no second chances. So take advantage of the opportunities you have been given today. Verse 27, he says, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus. All right, and so in verses 27 through 31, the rich man is saying, look, if, if I, if they would just have had more information, more evidence, if you could do something supernatural, if you could do something that would just be out of the ordinary, then I would have changed my behavior. They would change their behavior. Could you do something like that? Could you send someone from the dead? And, and what Abraham responds is by basically saying, look, what people need isn't more evidence. What people need is a change of heart. And so what we see here is it doesn't matter what evidence could be provided. I mean, Jesus could show up in this moment and like fall on this table. It's like you don't need, and, and if your heart's hard, it won't do a thing. You don't need more evidence. You have sufficient evidence as is. What you need is a change of heart. What you need is, is eyes that have been opened to see your need for God's grace. All right, and so in the, this chapter, in these verses, we see a picture of the afterlife. We see a picture of, of what does the Bible teach on hell. And so if we believe God's word is true, if we believe God's word is unchanging, then what does this teach us? Well, I believe there are three prominent pictures of hell presented in the New Testament, right? Three pictures. The most prominent is the picture of punishment, right? So the, the picture of punishment, which is what we see in Luke chapter 16, and we see some things. This is also mentioned in Matthew, Mark, 2 Thessalonians, Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation. Throughout the whole New Testament, hell is described as punishment. But some of the things we see in Luke 16 is that one is this punishment is, is something where you're fully conscious and aware. It's not just unconscious like a corpse being burned, like you are fully conscious and aware in this state. The rich man had memories, the rich man had senses. The rich man had emotions. This is a fully conscious state. The second thing we see is that this condition is irreversible. Like I said, it's eternally fixed. There's a chasm that can't be crossed. And then the third thing we see in Luke chapter six, 16 is that this destination is justified. And I know you might be thinking like, wait, what? Like the rich man never questions whether or not he deserves to be in this state. And the way that we know that is because what does he cry out for in verse 24? Have mercy on me. So if you're wondering like, what's the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is receiving something good that you did not earn, okay? Grace is when you receive something good that you did not earn. Mercy is not receiving something bad that you deserve, Mercy is not receiving something bad that you deserve. He doesn't cry out for grace. He cries out for mercy because he knows he deserves this. He complains about the pain, but he never complains about injustice. So this eternal conscious state of punishment is something that is justified. It's something we all deserve because of our hard-heartedness, right? But here's, here's what I've noticed um, more recently than, than not, but um, is that there, there are two other pictures of hell described in the New Testament. And I've noticed that some people feel like maybe they were presented only one growing up, or they were only presented one from their church. And then they hear about these other two, and they kind of feel like, was I, was I lied to, or were they, were they selectively holding these things back? So let me mention 
two other pictures of hell that I want to make sure that you're aware of, because I don't want you to ever feel like I'm, I'm just building a straw man or that I'm trying to just tilt to your guys' um, opinion towards what I believe, okay? So the, another picture that we see in the New Testament is that of, of destruction, okay? That of destruction, and we get that from the word perish, and so if you single the idea or the picture of perishing and just take it by itself, you don't hold it in balance, you just single it out, you can land in what position that's called annihilationism. And so people who believe in annihilationism believe that after death, um, that you might just immediately cease to exist, you just stop existing, you're annihilated, or that maybe you, you go through a, a period of time of experiencing um, punishment, but then there's an end point where you cease to exist. And where people will get this view from actually comes from the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not suffer conscious eternal punishment or should not perish, all right? And so, so this idea of perishing in the afterlife is absolutely a picture we see in the New Testament. But we have to understand that when you look at the concept of perishing in the Bible, the thing about the earliest place we see this is in the flood. In the flood with Noah, it says that the world perished. Did the world cease to exist? No, we're still here. But the world was no longer functioning as God designed it to function. And so when, when it talks about that we should perish in the afterlife, it's saying that in the afterlife, we will no longer function as God designed us to function, that God designed us to function to be in his presence, to, be, to, to receive his blessings, to receive his grace and his love. But if we cross over to the afterlife without Jesus, then we don't function as we were created to function. We perish. Right? And so I don't believe the, the concept or the picture of perishing is about annihilationism. I think it's something to be held in balance with what we've seen earlier. And then the third picture we see is that of banishment. Right? Some people might call this separation. And so when I explain Romans 6.23, I'll talk about what, what is spiritual death. It's, it's being separated from God. Right? And so when you read the Gospels, you see this kingdom language. There's, there's people who are in the kingdom. There are people who are banished from the kingdom. Right? So there's, there's a picture of banishment, of being separated from God. If you read um, 1 Thessalonians um, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through, t- 5 through 10, it talks about us being separated from the presence of Jesus. And so what some people would say is, well, hell is, is not God sending you anywhere. It's just it's you walking away and getting what you want. And it's God just saying, kind of go, go your own way. And there's a separation there. But what we need to know is that biblically, banishment isn't passive. It's not, pass, it's not God just passively saying, if you want self-sitterness, have your way, go. No, it, it also has an active component. And so if you take banishment and destruction and punishment and don't single anyone out, but hold them in balance, right, which is what we wanna do, we wanna hold all three pictures in balance, here's what you'll see, is that a biblical picture of hell is being eternally separated from God's goodness and grace but to also be eternally in the presence of his justice and wrath. Like that, if we want to hold all three of these pictures in balance, we see that hell is to be eternally separated from God's goodness and grace and to be eternally present in his justice and wrath. And I know some people have, have recently tried to diminish the concept of hell and they'll say, well, did you know, Jeff, that, that flames is most likely metaphorical? 
And so when I hear that, I'm like, I'm like, I've never heard that before. Like, no, okay, I've heard that, okay? And so I would actually say that I probably lean towards believing that the flames are metaphorical. So if you said, what do you think, Jeff? 50.5% certain it's metaphorical. Um, but here's what I know, okay? There is, there is one realm, or there's one reality. One reality, God's reality. There are two realms, a seen realm and an unseen realm. Okay, one reality, two realms. Hell is in the unseen realm at this point. In our existence, hell is not something we can see. So what biblical authors, what scripture will do, authors in the Bible will do, is they will take human language, language that we can understand, and they will stretch it to try to help us to understand something that we cannot comprehend. And so if the language of flames is metaphorical, it's human language being stretched to help us understand what hell is like, but the human language ultimately falls short, which means if fire and flames is metaphorical, hell is actually worse than what we could think of. The human language of flames falls short. So is it metaphorical? I think so, but I know that shouldn't cause us to breathe a sigh of relief. It should cause us to go, it's actually worse. So the idea of it being metaphorical doesn't soften the blow. What we see scripturally is that hell is serious. That it, that is, it is, it is a, a bad, horrible place to be. It's not something you just go and kick it with your buddies who are bad too. Like this is something you want to avoid at all costs. Like it's not a place that you wanna go and hang out in. But why do we struggle? Why do we struggle with this biblical concept of hell? I, I think there's probably two primary reasons. Because I know when we hear that, I think a lot of people are saying like, like it just doesn't, that you can tell me this, but I just don't believe it. Right? I think there's two reasons why we struggle with the concept of hell, especially when we think about how do we make sense of this in light of God's love, okay? The first reason is I believe we, we typically see God as less than he is and ourselves as better than we are. I think one of the reasons why we struggle with the biblical concept of hell is because we typically see God as less than he is and we see ourselves as better than we are. Um, I, I recently had someone tell me that they didn't think I, I've had enough spiritual conversations with people um, to really understand the issues that people have with Christianity, that I live in my little Southern bubble. And, uh, and I was like, <laughs> One, like I've had spiritual conversations in more places in the South. Like, I, like yes, I've had them in Georgia and Texas and Tennessee, Louisiana, like, like that's the South. But like I've, I've literally traveled the world having spiritual conversations. I've talked to people in London, in France, in Italy, in Germany, in Switzerland, in Moldova, in Belgium, in um, Costa Rica, in Guatemala, in India. Like, like if, if you think I haven't gotten a pretty good feel of what the world thinks about Jesus, like, I promise you, I've had my conversations, right? So what I would say is that most people, when they think about it, if there is a God, people typically believe God to be like a cool, laid back parent who really, he doesn't care how you live your life as long as you find happiness and don't get into too much trouble. And if that's who God is, then the idea of hell as the Bible presents it is abs it's absurd, it, it is absurd if that's who God is, but is God the cool laid back parent who just wants us to find happiness? Or is he a God that's holy and cares more about our holiness? And when we think about ourselves, most people wouldn't say they're perfect. Like I, I, don't, I actually don't know, I don't know anybody that thinks they're perfect. 
And even the people who might think they're perfect are still having plastic surgery, so they don't think they're perfect. All that to say, like, no one thinks they're perfect, but most people don't think they're bad enough to get hell. Most people think like, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm a pretty good person. So if hell does exist, then, you know, like I'll probably get the nod. I remember having a conversation with a guy at the ESPN zone in New York City and, and we we're having a spiritual conversation. And um, because it's, it's hard for me not to, what do you do? I'm a pastor. It's like, all right, we're, we're doing this. And so, um, and so he said, Jeff, he's like, my grandma was a great Christian. I mean, she grew up in the church. She sang in the choir. And he goes, and, and I'm, a, I'm a pretty good guy. And he goes, so I think when I get to heaven that she'll be by Jesus' side and she'll say, let him in and that I'll, I'll get in. And that, I think that's how a lot of us function. We're thinking like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I know some people that have already made it in and, and they can get me on the list and I'll be, I'll be fine. But the reason why we don't think we're that bad or that, that we're okay when it comes to eternity is because we view ourselves in light of other people instead of viewing ourselves in light of a holy God. And so if you think about the prophet Isaiah, when he encounters the presence of God, I mean, this is an amazing moment where God walks in, the world shakes, smoke fills the room. And, and there's seraphim, these holy creatures who, who cover their face because they can't even look at the presence of God. And, and they cry out, holy holy, holy. I mean, there's the holiness, the perfection, the, the magnificence, the glory of God. And Isaiah in this moment falls down and says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm, a, I'm from a people of unclean lips. Like I shouldn't be here and be living and breathing breath. Like he knows that he shouldn't be alive in the presence of a holy God. And so if we begin to see ourselves in light of who God is, we realize the depths of our sin, that, that our condition is much more serious than we're able to comprehend or process. You see, we are desperate for a savior. But as long as we see God less than he is and see ourselves better than we are, we'll always struggle with the biblical concept of hell because it'll always seem absurd or toxic or maybe just like a fear tactic. But I think there's a, another reason why people struggle with the concept of hell. And that's because it's, it's not theological for most of us. It's personal. Like I said, I've had, I've had many conversations. And when some people talk about hell, I, I would say more often than not, one of the biggest struggles is we know people that we have been close to that have passed away without knowing Jesus. Like, I, I think about... Think about my cousin who passed away last year from COVID complications. I think about a student um, who committed suicide. I think about grandparents, aunts, uncle. I'm mean, like, I think all of us would, would know someone that were like, this is why I struggle. It's, it's like, it's, it's, yeah, I get the theology stuff, but for me, I, I, and if that's you, you're like, I just struggle with the fact that like, I know people and I can't, I can't wrap my head around them not being with Jesus. And it's easier to just to turn away or to redefine it. I just want to let you know, like, me too. Like, I get it. Like, I, I struggle with that as well. It's not something that, it's not like I've arrived and that's just easy for me. It's like, well, Jeff, that doesn't do anything to him. Like, no, it breaks me. It breaks me. Okay, but here's what I've noticed or what I've found. I've found that with these hard questions, 
and with this wrestling that I identify with Job so much. Job, if you read that, this long poetic book where he's, where he's wrestling with the darkest hour of the night, he has all of these why questions. And, and God just lets him ask the questions, which is beautiful. God's not afraid of our questions. And eventually God says, okay, now it's time for you to act like a man. And he, like that's, that's strong language. That's what he taught. He says, hey, let's man up here. It's time for you to, to listen. And he says, look, where were you when I measured the waters of the sea? Where were you? When he's like, have you considered this? Have you considered that? And he, he lays out and gives Job this. I mean, still, if you want to know where's the longest dialogue of God speaking in scripture, it's Job. Lays out this huge dialogue. And then afterwards, what we find is Job never has his why questions answered, but he finds that the why questions have been overwhelmed by the who. That when he encounters God, he is okay, not because his questions are answered, but because he has God. And so if you're wrestling with the concept of hell right now and your response is, is I'm gonna pull away from God because I don't like this. If you think there's more peace in pulling away from God, I'm telling you there's not. It doesn't, it doesn't calm your heart. It doesn't make things easier. But what I found in my personal life is that when I struggle with the deepest, hardest questions in those darkest hours of the night, that when I come closer to God, I find more peace. Not because my questions have been answered, because I have an encounter with the creator of the universe. So I'd encourage you, don't, don't pull away, pull closer. That's where you'll find comfort. That's where you'll find peace. And will you have answers? I don't know. Like the, in this whole series of quietly questioning, I don't know if you're gonna find the answers you're gonna look for. But I do know that if you pull closer and have a greater encounter with God, you're gonna be okay. All right? so, so I don't know where you are with this. And I don't know, like, how do we wrap this up? Well, let me, let me say this. When, when we think about thinking rightly of God and thinking rightly of ourselves, here's what you need to know. The standard that God requires of us is Perfection. Not 55% good, not 75%, not even 99.9%. The standard which God requires of us to be in his presence, to be in a right relationship with him is perfection. That's bad news for us. The good news, the beauty of the gospel is that what God requires, he has provided in Christ Jesus. What God requires, he has provided. I mean, one of the fundamental truths of Christianity is that we are people who need a savior and that's what is given to us in Christ. I was thinking, I heard a story the other day about a famous pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of leaving town and having a neighbor collect his mail. And so when he gets home, his neighbor says, hey, a, a bill came in that was overdue, so I paid it for you. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know, he doesn't know how to respond until he knows what the bill was for. And so if the bill was simply some, some past due postage, he goes, you know, I'd, I'd shake his hand and say, thank you. But if it turns out that I had 10 years of back taxes that I had no idea about and that there was a bill that I could never pay off on my own, and that's what he paid, he said, I'd, I'd probably fall down at his feet. 
And so the only way that we can know how to properly respond to Jesus is by knowing what bill he's paid or what debt he has paid. If our sin's small, if our sin's not that big of a deal, something that God could just look the other way on, then maybe we shake Jesus's hand. But if our debt was something that we could never pay, something we can never earn on our own, something that, that is deserving of eternal separation from God's grace and love and to be in the eternal presence of his justice and wrath, then the only proper response would be to fall at his feet and worship him. That's what we need to know is the debt that we deserve to know the love that has been given. Think about those three terms, okay? The three terms of hell, punishment, banishment, destruction. These are why these are, why is it important to know these three pictures of hell? Because it tells us the love that Jesus showed for us. Punishment. At the cross, Jesus fully drank the cup, the wrath of God. Banishment. At the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he fully experienced separation from fellowship with the Father. And at the cross, he was destroyed. Where his life was given, he died the death that we deserved. You see, if you're like, look, I wanna eliminate hell because I believe in my God and my God's a God of love. If there's no hell, then let me ask you this, what did your God pay to love you? Nothing. But if you deserve hell, and that's what Jesus paid on your half, behalf, it doesn't diminish God's love. It actually increases it and makes it much more. You see, if we diminish hell, we diminish the love of God. But if we understand rightly the doctrine of hell, we make much of the love of God because we know the price that was paid. God, thank you for your word. I know that, God, I know in this moment that there's a processing happening in a lot of our hearts. For some, there's, there's anger right now. Um, for some, there's frustration. Maybe, maybe a, a, a new answer wasn't provided. Um, it feels like the old answer that they already had that didn't work, and, and there's just frustration. Uh, for some, maybe there's greater confusion. God, for some, maybe there's, there's hurt. God, I also believe that for others, there's, there's clarity. And God, my hope and my prayer is that you would help us to not diminish the doctrine of hell, as hard as it is to talk about, but to, to properly understand it, to have a greater understanding of the debt that Jesus paid so that we can know the love that you lavished on us to call us your children. God, for those who are questioning and struggling and, and wrestling, God, I, I ask that even if their why questions are not answered today, that they would have an encounter with you and that their why would be overshadowed by the greater who. Ashnay, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about us, you can check out our social media or website. Grace and peace to you.